Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 139 of Dogcast Radio. In this show, we have all the first aid advice you need to keep your dog safe. So I had to go back to college, get my advanced canine first aid honours from them, and then started teaching canine first aid from there. And to be fair, I probably do more canine first aid now than I do the human stuff, which is great for me because I get to take Axel, my dog, with me, and he's the demonstration dog, so not to be parted with Axel all days is fabulous. We have the Dogcast Radio News and a brand new Christmas fiction feature. But before all that, we have the second half of Ken Cragen talking about the 12 dogs of Christmas. In the last show, you heard Ken talking about the fascinating story behind the book and film of The Twelve Dogs of Christmas and giving us some behind-the-scenes stories. He talked about the challenges of the second film, which includes a lot of puppies. The puppies couldn't mix with the other dogs, and everyone on set had to walk through disinfectant and adhere to stringent rules put in place by the Humane Society. I commented that, as a dog lover watching the film, it's great to know that the puppies and dogs' welfare is being safeguarded, and Ken agreed. Here's the second part of the interview. Yes, they are, and they come from a reason. It's not like they're being arbitrary. Yeah. Recently, yeah. not so long ago, I think eight or nine puppies died from something they caught on the set of a film. Um, uh, there have been incidents. It doesn't take a lot of them. Mm. Unfortunately, I mean, we know this from when you go through all the all of the um, things at an airport now, all the security at an airport, that it only takes a couple of in- big incidents and restrictions come that are that are quite difficult for everybody. And in this case, there have been, you know, isolated incidents, but they've happened. And if they don't have these restrictions, there's somebody coming along and abuse it, you know. Mm. So uh, I have a friend who uh, might, the, the so, uh, assistant director on our film went on to be assistant director on another film that was shooting on puppies. They had to build a totally realistic animatronic puppy in order to, uh, because the puppy was the lead of that film, in order to get certain th- things done on the film. Cost them $60,000 to build it. But he told me if they hadn't done it, it was going to be impossible to shoot the film. Uh, wow, that's incredible. Yeah, it's one of the inside fascinating things to know. Now, by the way, we did this film without too many trained dogs. We had a few. We also found an interesting thing on this film about dogs. You know, these dog trainers that we used who did a fabulous job uh, really were not movie dog trainers, unlike the ones we had on the first film. And they were not basically used to guiding dogs from a distance. So whereas they would train, particularly our lead dogs, which we used a uh, uh, golden doodle. We had, we had two dogs play the one role. One was a little more active than the other. Uh, We used the name of the first one, Nessie, as the name of the dog in the film. But we also had Chester, who was a little more um, hyper, but in some ways good for certain stunts. So we had two dogs playing the role. And um, but what we found was they trained those dogs to do a lot of things when they were getting immediate rewards from the uh, from the trainer. But when they stepped away out of camera range, but still in dog sight line, those dogs really weren't trained to perform those tasks. I mean, they worked at it, but mm-hmm. they, but for example, we had a, we had a situation where the dog was to go retrieve a basketball and roll it with his nose to the, to the kid who was in a wheelchair. Well, you know, the dog went, uh, 
uh, to it perfectly in rehearsals, but the trainers were right there. When the trainers moved away, the dog got distracted and didn't do it, you know, and we finally never used those pieces. So you, you just get, you know, you, you learn an awful lot when you work with animals like this. We did have a trained dog, a poodle, but all he did was sit in the doghouse in the finale. So, <laughs> uh, And that's the same thing in the first film. He does a few stunts early, but then later he just sits in the doghouse. Yeah. Did did you have to sort of do that very often, kind of rewrite around the dog behavior that you, you could get, or did, did it mainly go with what you intended them to do? No, I think in both films we tended to write around the, the dog behavior. I mean, not write around, but edit around it. Yeah, yeah. You know, you'd shoot it, but there's only so much time you can you can spend. You know, if you, if you try a dozen times to get the exact behavior you want, you don't get it, you pretty much move on because – on a lower budget film, particularly, you don't have time to spend the whole day on one stunt. And um, and so you, you work around it. But, you know, we still got marvelous stuff with the dogs. And um, and some of the things you see in the first film are amazing. Well, there's a funny story from the first film, from the original. We, I, we had a little dog. He was uh, I'm trying to think of what breed he was or if he was even purebred. But a little uh, a brown and white puppy kind of dog that we got as a, as a fairly small dog, uh, but he was growing fast. So, you know, films are not shot in sequence. Mm. If you're, you know, if you're shooting a scene in a barn, uh, you're going to shoot all your scenes in that barn and then move on, even though the barn may be come back to, uh, you know, a half a dozen times during the film for different scenes, you've shot those all at the same time. So if you look closely in that first film, that puppy is getting bigger through the shoot. So in one scene, he may be one size, and the next scene, he might be another, <laughs> you know, because all the barn scenes, he's the same size. But when you move outdoors, you know, two weeks later uh, and shoot a scene with the puppy, the puppy's a different size. So yeah. if you look so closely, the puppy ends up in a different size at different times. It was quite a, quite a, uh, a funny, funny little inside. You'll never notice it if I don't point it out. But yeah, yeah, but it's one of the fun things, you know, that you have. I mean, a young animal is growing. Yeah, and they don't stay the same size. And if you have an animal that now, in the case of this new, the sequel, the puppy rescue sequel, um, in that case, we were using full-grown uh, golden doodles, which, by the way, are a marvelous dog. I mean, they're so much fun. They're they're kind of like a sheepdog but easier to train than a sheepdog yeah, yeah. Uh, and they're they're really quite a popular breed now i don't know about over where you are in england but i know that uh, yeah they're very popular yeah they're, they're definitely growing in popularity and i guess as you say you sort of got the softer side of the golden retriever but then the intelligence of the poodle and that they are definitely uh gaining popularity yeah yeah because gold retrie- i mean uh, poodles are much smarter i find than than i mean than golden retrievers. A certain golden retrievers owner might not agree with that, but it's been my experience. <laughs> we have boxers now. Um, and my daughter, when she wrote the book, we had boxers. But in those days, boxers, you know, they were pretty popular in England, but they weren't that popular over here. So when the when the publishers got ready to publish the book, they, they said to my daughter, uh, you've got to substitute some other breed for that. They wanted all top 10 breeds in the book and whatever was top 10 at the time. And hmm. boxers definitely weren't. They later became that, but they, they weren't at the time. So my daughter, who was only seven at the time, put her foot down. She said, no, <laughs> the boxers are in the book. They got to stay. Good for her. 
And we are, we're on our seventh or eighth boxer right now. We unfortunately just had to put down an 11-year-old boxer about a month ago. Mm. That's always sad. Yeah. But we, but yeah. we have a two-and-a-half-year-old now, and uh, <laughs> he's just beginning to calm down. Oh, yes. Yeah, I know the feeling, yeah. I have a Labrador, and I think they, they have to hit about four before they become reasonable. <laughs> yeah, he. Uh, my wife bent down to pet him one day about eight, six months or a year ago, and he leaped up and just about broke her nose. She had black and blue eyes and everything. Oh, dear. You know, because he can leap up to the, your, your head. He's got huge springs. Yeah. But she, she takes him for weekly um, uh, dog agility training. Mm. And we jumps in our backyard now and stuff. And that has really, really uh, made him much calmer and, and much more behaved. And, um, you know, I think if, if dogs have a task to do, they, they end up a little easier to be with. Definitely. Yeah. I think the thing with agility as well, people think of agility as purely a physical thing, but actually for both handler and dog, there's a lot of, of mental workout involved. And I think that tires the dog. Well, it, it tired me out when I had to go agility, but I think oh, it tires uh, the dog out as well. No, I, I my wife, uh, I, we've, we've just tried to decide who's training whom. <laughs> you, know, you know, you have to run with the dog the whole time. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's apparently fantastic at it. I've only gone two or three times to watch, but uh, she takes him religiously this week, two times this week. But usually every Tuesday night, she's down at dog agility in the evening with him and comes back telling me how great he did. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, they go through tunnels and they go through these mazes and kind of stuff. It's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess is um, is the third film going to be sort of 12 Dogs of Christmas, the agility tournament. No, or now there you go. <laughs> what about that? I'm trademarking that. <laughs> Do we have to pay you a royalty on this yeah. now? Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. I'm trademarking it now, <laughs> but I'm willing to share. <laughs> this one is anywhere near as successful as the first one. Uh, it, it probably is a franchise. Uh, the, the guy at Sony said to me, uh, I want this to be successful so we can do a third one. So they put up a lot of money. It was so much easier to make this film. I had one of the most pleasurable experiences making this new one that I've had, and it's come out beautifully. It cost us a little more. It was about a $3 million film, but it looks like a film that's cost twice that. It's got gorgeous photography. Uh, my, my, my director, uh, you know, who's a Mormon, had 23 grandkids in this film. Oh, wow. And uh, if you watch the finale and some of the stuff in the trailer, you'll see how wonderful it is. It's it's totally charming and and delightful. It does have a serious story running through it uh, of the of this kind of evil guy played by a fairly uh, experienced actor, a well known actor named uh, Sean Patrick Flannerly, who uh, people know him from much wilder films like Boondog Saints, and uh, he also was uh, on the TV series. Uh, the young Indiana Jones, he was the star of that. He's on The oh. Young and Restless quite a bit. Uh, and then there's another actor named D.B. Sweeney that are known pretty much worldwide. But the star of our film is a, is a girl who's not very known yet, but a sensational actress uh, named Danielle Chuchron. Or Chuchron is really the way to pronounce her name, Danielle Chuchron. And I think she's going to be a big star. She's been in, oh, four or five films this year, but uh, but. Smaller parts where in our film, she's the lead. She's practically in every scene. She's delightful. She's a dancer. She's a gymnast. She's an exceptional horsewoman. She just uh, became a reserve champion at the National Horse Show and actually came in fourth on one class where she was in the same class. Everybody else was a trainer on a top horse, and she came in fourth. 
She's just superb. And in our film, she does her own horse stunts. Wow. So uh, she has to jump out of a burning barn with a, with a horse. Oh. Uh, she okay. did that 15 times for us. It was great. Yeah. 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 So I mean, it's fun. She loves dogs, too. So she had a blast. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say the 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 message of the the film that you you've picked the right baddies if you like. Obviously, dog fighting is is very very bad and and not to be gone anywhere near. But also racing. Um, that's you know that's there's a big problem with that because we're breeding dogs. They're very prey driven. Sean Patrick Flannelly plays the villain. You won't actually recognize him. He does such a fabulous job of kind of aging and and being kind of a very mean character. And uh, Sean Patrick. Um, his character, uh, whose name is Phineas, is breeding the dog specifically for racing, but he's also using steroids and other things. He's got an evil kind of henchman. And they have this whole factory kind of setup where they're putting dogs on treadmills and, and injecting them and all this stuff. We don't see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. We, do see, we see an overview of it, but we don't want to make it too scary for kids. But... Um, but he's he's doing a lot of bad stuff, you know, and we know he's an evil guy. And then he's doing a lot of things. He's put he gets uh, uh, he gets the doctor to falsely say that the dogs have rabies and that that's why the woman who owned the place died. Mm-hmm. They quarantine the farm and and they take the eventually take the dogs away. They, they, they put the dogs, lock them up in their basement and. It's it's a neat kind of story. There's the, our teens are just spectacular. We've got some of the best looking, best acting teens you ever want to see in your life in this, and um, and it's a, it's a fun film. I say it's it's perfect for anyone five to fifteen or anyone who loves dogs, and it's a great film for family, you know, adults and everybody family age. It's a yeah, terrific. Yeah. 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 Um, we'll put all the links on that you've mentioned, twelve dogs of Christmas dot com and the YouTube and the Facebook uh, page and things like that. Um I, I guess the moral is if if your child is doodling on the back of a placemat at the dining yeah, table <laughs> encourage them. <laughs> she's been it's put her all the way through school now and uh and she's in grad school. She's at UCLA's uh, wonderful school of film and television. She's she shoots her first film this weekend, just a two-minute film, but it involves a dog. Uh, my wife is taking our boxer over there and <laughs> hope will perform. Uh, and uh, she's shooting her first one this weekend. But her college was all paid for by the the two the book and the two movies, and her uh, grad school is being paid for. Yeah, yeah, excellent. <laughs> well done, her. Um, Thank you ever so much, Ken, for your time. And, and you've made it sound really fun. And thanks for all the behind-the-scenes the um, details as well. It's been great. Well, it's wonderful. And I believe, you know, in all of the dog rescue pro. Oh, I should tell you that uh, not on this film, because I couldn't get the studios to actually make a contribution, but we're doing some live screenings and we're giving portions of the proceeds to, uh, to um, dog uh, adoption agencies and shelters and stuff. I always like to have some kind of a, a giving piece to everything we do. Yeah. I couldn't get the studio to do it on. They're not used to doing it on an actual the product going out, but we'll make some contributions if we see some significant money from the sale of the film. Yeah, lovely. So everyone's a winner. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. And thanks yeah. so much. Brilliant. Well, thanks ever so much. And uh, say hello to your boxer from me because he sounds Will fun. do. I just heard him shaking himself and getting up <laughs> to say hello. So... Uh, <laughs> 
we will do, and we're looking for another one uh, to give him. We, we always feel more than one dog in the home is uh, is a good idea. They need the companionship, you know, when you're not here. Yeah, yeah, and it's fun to watch their interactions as well, isn't it? Oh, uh, you know, our our older boxer was already seven, uh, nine years old when we got this new one, mm. and she, I didn't think she was going to live that long, and she lived at least two over two years as a result. And she was so active. I mean, she got a tumor and that was, you know, very symptomatic of boxers. She got a tumor and that's what killed her. But at the time she was running around like a kid. She'd yeah. chase them all over the place. They'd wrestle and fight and I mean, fight in a good way, fun yeah, way. Yeah. And they would, I mean, put on a show for you practically. <laughs> and I think the younger one just kept the older one going. Now they'll be much closer together. We'll probably get one after the first of the year. and it'll, They'll be much closer together. It's a little easier on us, but I still think just having that extra dog really makes a difference. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, the, the best of luck with all your future films, Ken. Thank you so much. I do love it when a product for dog lovers is made by dog lovers. You can find out more about the films at 12dogsofchristmas.com and we also have links to trailers and clips of the film. A dog is for life. Not just for Christmas. Dogs Trust. You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com. A canine Christmas carol, read and written by Julie Hill. Two weeks before Christmas... Edmund Smith looked in on each kennel as he did his usual rounds last thing at night. Kennel might be too comfortable a word to describe the bleak cells which housed his dogs, but he peered into each squalid, stinking hellhole, nodding with satisfaction that all was right in his empire. He prided himself on breeding so many breeds and so many litters each year. He could churn them out, or rather his dogs could, and when they couldn't, well, he knew just what to do then. All his bitches had litters tonight, though, and tonight there were no dead puppies, though some were sickly, but he could liven them up and sell them on, always more than enough gullible fools at Christmas desperate to buy a puppy. They lined his pockets nicely. He smiled broadly at the thought. Then a frown creased his brow as he noticed a sheet of paper pinned to the railings of the last kennel. He grasped it between his dirty, pudgy fingers and read... Tonight you will be visited by three ghosts that will show you the error of your ways. Repent, Edmund Smith, before it is too late. Change your ways. You have been warned. He stared at the words as hot anger grew and churned within him. These animal rights people took things too far sometimes. No, always. Now they had trespassed on his land and threatened him. Surely you have been warned was a threat. He hurried out of the dismal kennel block and swept a look around the yard, but nothing was amiss. He locked the padlock on the outer door of the block, turned his collar up and trudged across the yard to his house. As he opened the house door, a sudden cold wind gusted around him, chilling him to the bone, and he could have sworn he heard the words, "'Change your ways,' hissed in his ear. He started and stared around him. "'Shut that door!' came his wife's voice from across the kitchen. It's blowing a gale out there. As he turned to reply, 
the bitter wind ripped the strange warning letter from his hand, whipping it up into the night sky, where it fluttered out of sight. "'What's the matter with you? Don't just stand there gawping. Shut the door!' his wife snapped, and he obeyed. Later that night, as they went to bed, Edmund was still troubled by the letter. "'What did it mean? You will be visited by three ghosts. Were those activists planning a raid on his premises again?' He'd have the law on them again if they did, just like all the other times. He was doing nothing wrong and the law would protect him. If a man couldn't breed a few dogs as he saw fit on his own land, then what was the country coming to? Convinced his outrage would keep him awake, Edmund fell asleep almost as soon as his head touched the pillow. He was wakened suddenly by a noise at his bedside. Through bleary half-opened eyes he saw Bess, a small terrier cross, standing there wagging her tail. He smiled sleepily and reached out a hand to stroke her wiry head, and then immediately came to full consciousness as two facts hit him. Bess had been dead for several decades, and, more shockingly, his hand had passed straight through her. Before he could fully register his shock, they were no longer in his bedroom, but in a dingy lounge. He looked down to see himself as a boy, sprawled on the floor reading a book, with Bess cuddled up to his side. The boy, Edmund, stroked Bess's side now and then, and each time, though her eyes remained contentedly closed, her tail thumped the floor in happiness. Then they were transported to a nearby stream, Edmund sitting on the bank, a makeshift fishing rod in his hands, his eyes scanning the shallow waters hopefully, as Bess helpfully splashed around. The adult Edmund smiled as he recalled the happy hours he and his childhood companion Bess had spent together. The scenes rushed past, blurring from one to another, Bess on his bed as he lay in a darkened bedroom with measles, Edmund sneaking bits of bacon for Bess from his breakfast, Bess greeting him ecstatically as he came home from school, Edmund crying into her fur when his grandmother died. Edmund turned to the ghost Bess beside him. You were my best friend. Bess wagged her tail and looked up at him lovingly. The scene before them stilled, and they were in the kitchen of Edmund's childhood. Bess lay in a wicker dog bed, with seven tiny pups nestled up to her. The young Edmund sat beside her, talking, fussing her, still the best of friends. Then the scene faded, and reformed, to show the child Edmund running to keep up with his father, who was carrying the puppies in a cardboard box. Ghost Bess whined, and Edmund looked down at her. "'I don't want to see the next bit,' Edmund said. But Bess gave a low growl and nudged his knee. Edmund watched as he and his father sold the pup to neighbours and strangers, anyone with money, and he saw the greedy light come into the child Edmund's eyes as the boy realised that money could be made from puppies. Adult Edmund recalled that Bess went on to have many more puppies, all sold for extra pocket money. "'I didn't treat you fairly,' Edmund sighed. "'I'm sorry.' He looked down sadly, but Bess had disappeared and Edmund sat on the edge of his own bed, looking down at empty floor. Edmund jumped to his feet, searched the room, and finding nothing, threw open the door and stared around the landing, but there was no sign of his old dog, or anyone else for that matter. "'What's going on?' murmured his wife, sleepily but angrily, disturbed by the noise. Edmund got back into bed. "'I had a bad dream,' he answered, but she was asleep again. Edmund did not want to go back to sleep. He didn't want another disturbing dream. So he sat upright, staring ahead, thinking of the boy whose love of animals was replaced by a love of money. A low whine made him jump, and, stealing his nerve, he looked over the side of the bed. 
A thin, lethargic puppy lay beside the bed. He didn't look well. His coat was matted. But he tried to wag his tail. And when his dull, sad eyes met Edmund's, they were off on another journey. When the world around him stopped spinning, Edmund realised they were in a house. A woman he recognised was holding a puppy he recognised as one of his, and talking to a couple who were clearly eager to hold the puppy themselves. The woman was one of Edmund's colleagues. She posed as the breeder who had bred the pups that he supplied, and she fed her customers a well-practised patter. They're from my own dog, Sally. A dog in a million she was, and sadly she died giving birth to this lot. I've hand-reared them, so they're very friendly. The woman paused. But they're so precious to me, I don't really know whether to part with them now. The couple's faces fell, and they immediately gave assurances as to the care they would give the puppy. Well, the woman apparently considered, seeing as you're such nice people, I could let you have her, but the paperwork isn't ready yet. Edmund admired the woman's skill as she lured them in, gaining herself and him a good profit, as the puppy was handed over with no puppy pack, no insurance in place, and no support on offer should the puppy develop any problems. The room dissolved and they were in a shop. There was a large tank with puppies on display. They were not one litter, but rather single pups taken from several litters. But even so, they ran around together having a wonderful time. Of course, as Edmund knew well, they looked cute, but who knew what germs they were exposing each other to, and with none of them having been vaccinated, who knew which would live and which wouldn't? The sickly ghost puppy who had brought Edmund here whined and lay down. His nose was dry, and his side heaved with the effort of every breath. The next scene was a vet's surgery. A skinny pup lay still on the examining table. The vet shook his head, and the children next to the table clutched their mother and cried. This was not personal to Edmund, and didn't touch his heart in the way Bess's story had. Take me home, he snarled at the sickly ghost puppy. The pup did not respond, so Edmund pushed it with his toe. The tiny dog showed no response. Edmund knelt down, terrified that if the puppy was dead, he, Edmund, would be trapped in this ghost dream limbo. He picked the puppy up. Take me home! Take me home! he shouted. What is wrong with you tonight? his wife demanded, as Edmund found himself sitting up in bed, grasping empty air. Nothing, he muttered, and hurriedly lay down. What was wrong with him, he wondered. Brain tumour, stroke, or maybe just indigestion? He closed his eyes and clenched his jaw, determined not to let another ghost disturb him or drag him from his bed. The loud bark had his eyes snapping open, glancing round in fear his wife had been awakened again, but she slept on. Turning back to his side of the bed, Edmund was confronted by a large skeletal dog. That is to say, what appeared to be the skeleton of a dog, except every bone was pitch black and even seemed to suck light out of its surroundings and whose eyes glowed deep red. "'You're not real,' Edmund whispered, gripping the duvet, but the nightmarish dog gave another room-shaking bark, and despite the lack of lips, managed to give the impression of a lip-curling snarl when he growled. "'All right,' Edmund sighed wearily, sitting up, and with that they were off. The scenes that flashed before him made no sense now. They were random.' He saw more puppies than ever being bred in his concrete cell blocks. He saw protesters outside his own premises and also picketing outside pet shops. 
He saw dogs bred with no thought or caring, dying both from natural causes and being euthanised by the hundreds as rescue shelters ran out of space. He saw heartbroken owners crying. He saw a kaleidoscope of despair and horror and suffering, misery and affliction and distress, and at the centre of it all was him, a corpulent caricature, throwing money into the air, celebrating and laughing. Then the nightmare skeletal black-boned dog with the terrifying red eyes loomed up in front of him and grew to enormous proportions before it opened its huge jaws and released barks that vibrated through Edmund to his very core. He was sweating and shaking when he woke up in bed. Carefully and silently he tiptoed over to the window and wiping his forehead with the sleeve of his pyjamas surveyed his domain. Then Edmund Smith took a deep breath, shrugged and returned to bed to sleep peacefully, because not even a nighttime visit from three ghosts can move the heart of a puppy farmer. The Grinch has nothing on them. He may have stolen Christmas, but those who breed dogs simply to make money steal so much more. So Edmund Smith didn't get a happy ending. But we can make one happen simply by not buying from puppy farmers and putting them out of business. And with that, as Tiny Tim said, God bless us one and all, but not the puppy farmers. The reason a dog has so many friends is that he wags his tail instead of his tongue. Unknown. Would you know what to do if your dog was choking on something? Or if he took an agility jump badly and injured a leg, or got cut by spiky plants in the woods? If not, don't worry, because Kerry Rhodes is a canine first aid expert, amongst other things, and she has all the advice you need. But how did she become a canine first aid expert? Well, I think it's, it's, it's never a straightforward thing when you think you're going to pick your career as a child, and it never turns out like it's going to be. I actually started working for the health service for 20 years, Hmm. Um, and then left, all of a sudden you have one of those epiphany, epiphany moments and you think, no, nope, I'm going to do something else, this isn't for me. And because of my interest in all things health and the fact that I do like to jabber on and talk a lot, <laughs> I became a teacher yeah. and started my own company, Roads to Safety, which is a first aid training company doing humans. Now, on those courses, we'd have break time and you'd sit and have a natter and have a coffee and so many people would ask me questions. What would I do with, if it was my dog and this happened, if that happened? And at first I was quite happy to tell them what, what I personally would do. But it was happening so often that you start to panic and think, actually, you know, I really better make sure that the advice I'm giving is breed specific. And that if it's different for dogs, I need to know about it. So I had to go back to college, get my advanced canine first aid honours from them, and then started teaching canine first aid from there. And to be fair... I probably do more canine first aid now than I do the human stuff, which is great for me because I get to take Axel, my dog, with me, and he's the demonstration dog, so not to be parted with Axel all days is fabulous. It's a bonus. Yeah, that sounds a great, great job. So tell me about Axel's job then. What part does he play as a demo dog? Well, Axel is a six-year-old Rhodesian Ridgeback. His full name is Janak Jago of Metal Rock. He's a show dog, an agility dog. He's an all-round good egg, really. But as far as the demonstration dog goes, he comes to all the courses and he allows the students things like where do you find a pulse? There's various places on a dog you can find a pulse. And because he's so big and so laid back and relaxed, 
he's quite happy for the students to maul him all over, find <laughs> the various places, you know, femoral artery in his, in his groin there, or even just to listen to his heartbeat with a stethoscope so they can hear what's normal for a dog because most people have no idea. You know, they kind of think that a heartbeat will go gudung, gudung, gudung in a normal fashion. Dogs' hearts don't do that, particularly young and healthy dogs. Yeah. Often they've got a rhythm all of their own, and when you hear it for the first time, it's normal to assume that there's something wrong. But in actual fact, that's normal for your dog, and it will have a pattern all of its own within it. So it'll be um, gudung, 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 which you think sounds really mad, yeah. but it will repeat that exact rhythm again, and that will be a normal rhythm for your dog. So don't expect it to be like ours, because it just isn't. Wow, do you know, that's fascinating. I'm, I'm going to get hold of a stethoscope and have a listen. Yeah, you have a listen. You will think your dog's got a heart murmur. Probably not. It's probably absolutely fine and it's just normal for your boy. Yeah, yeah. Now, going back to Axel, do you know, that would be my, my Labrador buddy. That would be his dream to have people just sort of giving him attention, whether it was poking and prodding, finding um, pulses, whatever it was. Oh, yeah, he absolutely loves it. He sits and does all the bits that are his bits. So we do um, the bandaging and that kind of thing and checking gum coloration. He lets the students do that. And then when I'm talking, he just works the room, baby, working (laughs) it, working it, checking everybody out. Have you got any treats? Can I have a scratch behind the ear? He's just in his element. That's all he does. He just gets free cuddles all day and then does his bit in between. Oh, excellent. And he never knows what a big help he is to you, does he? he Honestly, I think he thinks he's the star of the show. And most (laughs) of my students would probably agree, to be fair. He's going around thinking, can you shut up, Mum? These people can't concentrate on me. Well, he does. He, you know, occasionally he does, you know, they say he'd never work with animals and children and there is the odd occasion he'll get up, show his bum to the class and start <laughs> digging the floor and running around and you think, what, what are you to do? But luckily, everybody on the course is a dog lover so they know what you get so they, they tend to take it in good fun so it's fine. Yeah, good for him. I like a dog with a sense of humour, I really <laughs> do. <laughs> um, OK, so what, what kind of people should be thinking about doing a first aid course? I mean, who exactly will find it useful? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's very easy, really, just to turn around and say, if you work or live or have a dog in your life, you're the person this is aimed at. It's not just um, for pet owners, although we do do a lot of pet owners, but everything from people who do agility with their dogs and might possibly encounter sports injuries, um, people who use them in a more commercial capacity. Like I often deal with a lot of security guard dog handlers that are going to need to make sure that should anything happen to their dog on duty, they can cope. We have um, people who deal with perhaps go shooting and they use their dogs for beating or flushing or bringing, you know, bringing the birds back. All of these people, if their dogs are out of action, they're losing money. So it's not just purely from a tugging on the heartstrings point of view that you're looking after your dog and you're doing the best thing for them, although the commercial people, they, they love their dogs as much as anybody else. But certainly for them, you know, it's an occupation. They need their dog to be able to carry out the job. And sometimes the very minimal things that they can do themselves gets the dog back up in action quicker and then they're not losing money and days off work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So... What's the most common situation that sort of a pet owner might have to deal with first aid-wise? Pets, it's always choking. Hmm. Always choking. If it's not nailed down, your dog will have a go at chewing it. (laughs) And whether it's a ball that's bounced the wrong way or a stick they've got hold of or just something animal, vegetable or mineral, they're going to have a crack at it. And you know what they're like. They gobble it down as quick as possible before you get a chance to get it off them and then it gets stuck. 
And I'm sure that most of the dog owners you come across at some stage will have been in that situation where the dog's wandering around coughing, uh, coughing and choking, just generally panicking and you're standing there and do you know what to do? It's a horrible moment when you suddenly find yourself you know, in that position and you really don't know what to do to help them. Mm-hmm. What should we do in that situation? Well, first thing, very, very straightforward. If, without getting bitten, you can have a look and sweep the mouth to get out whatever is in there, then that's fine. We can do that. Just be careful that you don't be tempted to try and grab it and pinch it with your two fingers. If you imagine being in the bath with a moist bar of soap, if you try to nip it on the corner because it's moist, that bar of soap is going to skid away from you. And the same thing would happen with a blockage in the throat and you'd make it worse. It would go further down. So really, we try to avoid, if we can, you know, trying to grab an obstruction. What you should be doing is giving the dog sharp, hard back blows between the shoulders. Try and dislodge the blockage. The dog will have his head down, so gravity's helping. That's a good thing. And we can try patting them on the back like that. If it doesn't work, then we need to use gravity even more. So if you've got a little dog, if you hold him upside down, just above the hocks, and do the back slaps that way, then hopefully the blockage will come out. Obviously, with a ridgeback, dangling him upside down by the legs is not going to happen and they wouldn't thank you for it. So in a situation with a big dog that you really can't lift, if you hook your arms around their waist, sort of as if you're trying to do a wheelbarrow with them Mm. and pick the back legs off the floor and then try administering the back blows from that position, that's going to be a lot better. If that doesn't work, then you need plan B. And unfortunately, that's the Heimlich manoeuvre. So you need to, again, little dogs are easier. Put your hand underneath their front arms with the dog facing away from you. Make a fist. And if you can imagine where the ribs meet, you have um, a soft hollow at the top like a triangle. Mm. If you pop your fist in there and then use the other hand to squeeze it, hopefully we can force the blockage out that way. With a big dog, you'll have to sit them down facing away from you and then pop your arms underneath their forearms and lean them back against you so they're actually sitting right back on the floor on the bottom, Mm -hmm. and then you can administer the same technique. I don't know if you've seen Mrs. Doubtfire at all, where Robin Williams is (laughs) dancing around behind Piers Morgan in the restaurant. Same kind of thing. That's what you're angling after. Hang on, Piers Brosnan. There's a huge difference between Piers Morgan and Piers Brosnan. Sorry, Piers. Exactly. (laughs) The one one I would quite enjoy the experience. You know, I think I'd rather go with Piers Morgan. You think? <laughs> no, I don't think so. No. Yeah. We're looking we're looking definitely for the, the ex James Bond guy. He's the actor I'm after. Oh, absolutely, yes. Piers Brosnan. Yeah. Definitely. Yep. But it's not necessarily how hard you do it that's the important thing. It's the speed. Mm. It's a very quick little jerk that you're doing. You're aiming for your thumb to give the diaphragm a little nudge, a little poke, and that hopefully will cause the coughing reaction and get the blockage out, and we can do it that way. Any time that you've had to perform the Heimlich manoeuvre, whether it's a human or a dog for that matter, you must also get the dog to the vet to be checked out. There is a very slight chance that you could have put a tear in one of the internal organs, and you would hate for your dog to bleed to death because of what you've done. Yeah. So it is a really important thing. Even if the dog seems absolutely fine afterwards, you must have him checked out by a vet. Mm. Mm. But I mean, as you say, the, the, the priority at that time is to get the, the blockage out. Absolutely. Then, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would say that you, you sort of try the technique. So you go from the back slaps, checking the mouth and doing the Heimlich manoeuvre. I would have a go at that, 
three times, so the whole lot three times through. And if after the third time you haven't managed it, I'd be ringing my vet at that point and saying what's going on, that you've got a problem and that you need to bring the dog in. Please don't just take the dog to the vet without ringing ahead. Your problem is always perhaps the surgery is shut or maybe the vet is out on call. If you arrive and there's no professional help there, it's, it's no good being at the vets at all. So ring ahead, let them know you're coming, and hopefully they can meet you there and administer treatment immediately and save your dog. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point because there's, you know, for, for humans, there's the 999 ambulance or, or 911 um, ambulance call. But for- yeah, that, that's exactly the problem, and that's, that's why we always say it's a good idea if you have got some first aid skills in your belt because there is just you. You don't have 999 for a dog. The dog's only got you to rely on, so make sure you know what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Now, other situations that might occur for a, for a, a pet owner, um, sort of can we do CPR on a dog? Absolutely, you can do CPR. Hmm. Now, there's, there's two skills that people kind of get mixed up between. One is artificial respiration and the other one is CPR. Now, artificial respiration is breathing for the dog if the dog still has a heartbeat. The other one, CPR, is when you breathe for the dog and you beat the heart for the dog if they don't have a pulse. We'd never do CPR on a dog that does have a pulse. So it's really important that before you start, you know whether there's a pulse there or not. Right. So artificial respiration is, um, in essence, extend the neck all the way back and pull the tongue forward. You know how long a dog's tongue is. You've seen them panting. Yeah. Honestly, I think it's like a rolled up carpet sometimes. I wonder <laughs> where they store it. But in a situation, we need to make sure that the airway is open. So we pull the tongue forward, extend the neck, grasp the dog around the muzzle and blow down the nostrils. And we want to be looking at the same time as blowing so you can see the chest wall actually rising so that you know that you've been successful. You put five breaths in to top him up with oxygen. And then what we're going to do is push down on the rib cage to squash the lungs about a third of the depth of the body. And that'll squeeze the air out and then take your hands off and count to five. What we're doing is acting pretty much like a set of bellows. So as you push down, you squirt the air out. And when you take your hands off, the air will suck back in again. And it means that we don't have to keep administering the breaths. You only do the five at the beginning. And then after that, purely pushing down a third of the depth and then counting to five before the next one. That's your artificial respiration for a dog. All right. Okay. The CPR is where you give the five breaths to start with, exactly the same as the artificial respiration. But then you have to do the compressions on the heart muscle itself. So the first thing you need to know is where is the heart Mm. in the dog? The easiest way to find the heart is if you take the front leg and bend it backwards so that the dog's elbow touches the rib cage. It's about over the fourth to sixth rib, something around that area. And that's where you'll find the heart so you know exactly where to target. Mm. And now, is, that, is that on the left side or is that in the fairly central? It's on the left side, the same as us. So what we always do is lie the dog on the right-hand side so that his left side is uppermost and then you can get nice and easily to the heart from there. Okay, great. Okay. Yeah. But if you have a large or a medium-sized dog, you're going to need two hands to do it, to put one hand on top of the other, like you've seen in the movies or casualty, any of those programmes. If you have a small dog, you just the one hand. And if you have a teeny tiny dog... You want to put your hand all the way around the ribcage and squeeze it so that it's your thumb that's pressing. That also works for cats. Just press with your thumb. Mm, okay? Yeah. You, 
you're going to have to do exactly the same as with humans now. The numbers for canine first aid have changed very recently, and luckily now it falls in line with human CPR. So it's 30 compressions and then two breaths. 30 compressions and two breaths. We'd carry on for about a minute and then have a quick check to see if you were successful. If not, you need to carry on. And we'd probably carry on for about 20 minutes. And if at the 20-minute mark there's no sign of any reaction or any signs of life from your dog, then unfortunately that's time to call it a day. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But again, you may well within that time have, have saved your dog's life, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we would hope that you did, yeah. We hope that we'd maybe do it just for a couple of minutes or something, get enough oxygen in there, and perhaps that might be enough. I have seen a really good clip, actually, on YouTube of a trainer who um, he has a lady with him that he's doing some obedience with, with her boxer, and the boxer collapses, and he actually administers artificial respiration. And I think it takes about five minutes, but it's successful. And you see the dog recover and get up. The lady, as you'd imagine, is screaming and yeah. absolutely beside herself, hysterical while it's going on. But there is a happy ending. Yeah, yeah. And it, I th- that must be one of the hardest things to deal with, because when it's your dog, that panic must set in. And that's it. And unfortunately, there is only going to be your dog that you're administering these on by law the only person um, allowed to administer first aid techniques on an animal is a veterinary professional now that's not us just because we've done a first aid course that Mm. doesn't make us a professional so by law the only dog that you could do this on is your dog or a dog that's been left in your care that the owner has told you that they are quite happy for you to do this Otherwise, you should not be doing this procedure on any any dog but your own. Definitely not. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you were out on a walk and you encountered, because you just said, you know, about giving permission, if you were out on a walk and you encountered a, a dog and owner together, if the owner said, could you help me, do, can you do it then? It's, it's absolutely up to you. The problem always is that when something awful is happening, you're willing to take assistance and help from anywhere. Yeah. yeah. If it goes wrong, yes. you then look for somebody to lash out at and somebody to blame. So yeah. any time when you've been the one that's been helping with the best will in the world, if it doesn't work out, even if what you did was fantastic and exactly what you should have been doing, the chances are that owner is going to be looking for somebody to blame and it might be you. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, so a note of caution there. Definitely, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just yeah. to be on the safe side. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for sort of agility people and sort of, um, you know, doggy sports people um what what sort of thing because presumably they're going to have to deal with some injuries there aren't they yeah agility is if you've never tried it i absolutely recommend it it's the best fun you can have with your clothes on definitely (laughs) it's absolutely superb it's dynamic it's fast you've got the bond with your dog yeah they're running they're jumping following direction from you now the speed that they're running and jumping with inevitably occasionally they might land the jump badly and go over on their ankle or perhaps they've skidded and fallen and tumbled and they've hurt the shoulder. Or maybe even, you know, I have seen it on one occasion, you know, not very often, but occasionally because the dogs are so keen and going so fast, they have something that's called a dog walk, which um, takes them up a height and they have to trot along it and down the other side. Because they hit them so quickly, sometimes they fall off. So there are occasions when you may get injuries resulting from that or even a friction burn because they skid to a halt very, very quickly, yeah. 
Yeah. If the, you know, if the surface that they're running on isn't absolutely the best for that kind of procedure, then you know there are times when they can have a friction burn on the pads as well. So there are lots of different things that can happen with any you know any sport. It's always fraught with danger in there. Yeah, yeah. So how would we sort of do, you know say if your your dog has gone over on his ankle? I think that was the first one you mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, come, come off a jump on a bad um, angle and sort of you think there's an injury. How how do we approach that? Well, very, very similar to how we do with human first aid, any sprain or strain, your first thing to do is rest it. And I often hear footballers and things when they've, they've sprained their ankles and they say, oh, I'm just going to run it off. You can't run a strain or a sprain off. It needs rest. So that's your first thing. So crate rest for your dog is ideal. They might not thank you for it, but they really do need to be kept very quiet and kept the weight off as much as possible. The next thing to do is a cold compress or something like ice. You know, wrap a towel around the paw or the ankle to protect it. And then if we can put a bag of frozen peas next to it, that will help to take the swelling down. And when the swelling comes down, it will be less, less painful for them. Next is compression. You need to put the support bandage on. Now, a compression bandage isn't so tight that you're going to stop the blood circulation. What that is, it's something like, your, I don't know if you know about what vet wrap, it, vet wrap is. You know, the stretchy sort of bandage? Uh, do you know, I was just thinking, I, I am very familiar with this because when my dog Buddy had his uh, mast cell tumour removed from his tummy, yeah. they, ta- they took such a mass of tissue away, it swelled. Yeah. So then they had to use exactly what you're saying, a compression bandage to stop it swelling. That- and it, my dog is made of Teflon apparently and nothing would stick to this stuff the rolls and rolls and rolls of the vet wrap that we went through yeah it, it was incredible so yes i'm very familiar with it so. well that's your perfect stuff for treating a sprain or a strain we need to give support to the limb and the idea is now we're going off subject a little bit but all the ladies out there will know what i'm talking about if you ever suffer from mastitis Hmm. and you get sore boobs once a month, and it's really unpleasant. If you ever speak to your doctor about it, he'll tell you the best thing to do is to go to bed wearing quite a tight sports bra. And the idea behind that is that the bra will create a barrier so that your boobs can't swell any bigger than the bra will allow. And the less swollen they are, the less sore they will be. And it's exactly the same with the vet wrap. We put it on so that the paw will only swell to as far as the vet wrap will allow and it won't get any bigger and hopefully yeah. we, if we keep the swelling down we keep the pain down as well so it's the same kind of thing with that and the last thing is elevation anytime you can raise a limb up off the ground is going to help with the swelling now i don't know how difficult you think it's going to be to hold a dog's leg in the air <laughs> pretty blooming difficult yes, so they'll often, be fighting you yeah absolutely they're, they're not keen so if you can rest the paw on a pillow or something like that so that it's elevated, that might be all that you can do. But certainly if you can, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, quite uh, briefly, because obviously not many listeners will, will have a dog that does protection work. Not, not uh, yeah, I mean, there's some shuts and listeners probably, but, you know, not sort of the dangerous, the protection work, and the yeah. security work. But, I mean, in that instance, um, you, you could get sort of stab wounds and... Presumably, I mean, I've got a border collie that plunges off into foliage in the woods to find the ball that's bounced Absolutely. the wrong way. Yeah. So we can get sort of those those nasty injuries, sort of that kind of stab wound. What do we do if, you know, your dog's bleeding like that? What do we do then? Well, the most important thing is to know exactly what kind of wound that you've got because different wounds we will treat in different ways. Hmm. For instance, you have um, a laceration and an incision. 
doctor terminology, but still, a laceration is when you have a wound that leaves a rip or a jagged tear. Usually something like thorns or barbed wire is going to give you an injury like that. Mm. Then you have something called an incision, and that's made by a very sharp slice, a piece of glass perhaps. Something, you know, a piece of glass left on the floor that the dogs come into contact with will give them a sharp slice. Now, if you can tell what sort of injury you've got, you'll dress it differently. For example, the sharp slice is going to bleed and gape open. So your important thing there is going to be to stop the blood loss. Because it's just a sharp slice that's done it, it's likely to be a very clean wound. So I wouldn't be so worried about cleaning it. My important thing would be, wow, let's get the blood stopped as quickly as possible in case the dog goes into shock. Mm. The laceration, which is the jagged one, perhaps with barbed wire, is not going to bleed anywhere near as much, but it's liable to be really quite dirty and have bits of debris in it. So my priority there would be, before I bandage it, to make sure that I've cleaned it thoroughly so there was no problem with infection. So the important thing is to see what kind of wound have you got and treat it in the right way. Mm. If something is bleeding a lot, we need to do what we call using SEEP. S-E-E-P, and it'll help you remember what to do. So the S would stand for sit or lie. We need to put the dog in whatever position is best to treat the wound. Next is E, which is elevate. Now, if we need to elevate the wound, so it's, for instance, if it was a paw injury, sitting the dog would be no good because the wound would be pointing downwards. Oh. So in a situation with a paw, we'd lie it down. If it was a situation, say, with a shoulder, we would sit the dog down because then the shoulder is higher than the heart and it's elevated. And that's why you get the sit or lie. Oh. So then we have sit or lie, elevate. Next is examine. And that's where you decide what kind of wound you have. You know, is there anything embedded in the object? You know, perhaps a piece of glass or... Have, you know, if the dog has been stabbed, as you're suggesting, have they been stabbed with a knife and the, the knife has been left in? Please never, ever take an object out that's embedded in a wound. If you, the wound could be being plugged by whatever the object is. And if you take it out, then potentially you're opening the wound up and it's going to bleed even more. Yeah. Or maybe there's a barb on whatever is sticking in. And if you take the, wound, the object out, you're going to make more damage to the wound because the barb might create more injury. So we always leave it in. And finally, the last thing, the P, stands for pressure. We need to put direct pressure straight on the top of the wound if we can. Obviously, if there's something sticking out and protruding, that's not possible. So then we put pressure on both sides of whatever the object is and apply that pressure, and that's what's going to stop you bleeding for you. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned barbed wire there, and I know you've got personal experience with your dog. No, with actual <laughs> Calamity Jane, yeah, he's a nightmare. <laughs> We are lucky enough um, to be able to show Axel, and he does really quite well in the show ring. And the very first year he'd ever qualified to go to Crufts, um, it's a very early start, and obviously we have to drive all the way there and be at the showground for 8 o'clock in the morning as well. So that means getting up early. So to get around that the night before, I'd taken him for a walk as late as possible, really, in the hope that he would still be quite, quite groggy in the morning and not need to go straight out. And we'd done our whole walk up the dale through the woods, absolutely fantastic. And about 100 yards from the car, he spotted a pheasant, took off through the woods after the pheasant, chased it, disappeared from view, as he often does being a hound. And I'm shouting him to come back and where is he? And he's no sign of him. And after about five minutes, eventually, I heard him scurrying through all the undergrowth. And what had happened, he'd got through after the pheasant, 
but when he'd come back to try and return to me at the recall, he couldn't find the hole in the hedge that he'd gone through. Oh. And so he made his own exit through the hedge, and unfortunately the place that he picked had barbed wire through it. And when he came back to me, he had two lacerations on the top of his head as he'd squeezed through the barbed wire fence, and one either side of his body as well, the full length of his body that he'd ripped the full length. And this is the day before he makes his big debut in the green <laughs> oh. ring at Crufts. Well, thank you, Axel. Yes. So, yeah, it bled, you know, a fair amount, but luckily because it was a laceration rather than the incision, you know, he wasn't actually leaking left, right and centre. It mm. was purely a case of cleaning him up, pinching the skin together till it would heal, and we stuck him together um, with sticky tape to, yeah. keep the, to keep the wound stuck together until it healed and about... 20 minutes later, it was all nicely stuck and we just cleaned him up. And yeah, luckily he was fine and he'd been left with no scarring. But the scar that it did to my little heart when he came flying through the hedge looking like mm. that, no, didn't really need that from him. So yeah, we've all had a go with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you do panic. I mean, our, our border collie, that uh, Rusty, that sort of plunges off into the, the undergrowth after a ball because he goes, no, I know where it is. And he just goes. Um yeah. We had an, an incident recently, we were walking him, and we had a lovely walk, and he was chasing the ball, and he will not lose a ball, he's got to go and find it. And we'd walked on about, I don't know, 40, 40 feet, turned around, called him, and come on, Rusty, and I could see his head above the undergrowth, but just looking at me and not moving. I'm thinking, what on earth is going on? So we walked back, and luckily my husband was with me, um, and Rusty, had, he must have twirled in the undergrowth, and he'd got his tail caught, it, where so there, there was about five brambles meeting yeah and luckily it was all just in fur it, it wasn't an injury on that occasion but my husband got his pen knife out and i just <laughs> went don't cut his tail <laughs> and I, but so luckily anthony was with me and and you know he's fairly level-headed and he just cut the brambles actually and we were okay but it really you know opened up to me a very energetic dog particularly that's there it is, yeah there's it's, a world it's of all dangers. about the speed that they go the faster that they're going obviously one tiny little catch on the on the skin at that speed and you've got a whole you know whole wound to deal with it doesn't necessarily have to be a big sharp thing it's the speed that they're hitting it at and that's the problem yeah yeah now one more thing then Kerry um something I have heard that sort of stuck in my memory because I have got a bigger dog that I couldn't pick up my my Labrador was just too too heavy for me to pick up and certainly for me to carry very far if if you're out and about with a bigger dog um one of the things i've heard is that if if you're wearing a coat put some branches down the sleeves of the coat if the dog's you know injured itself and and can't actually move itself and use that as a stretcher now is that is is that a good tip or absolutely fantastic if you have to my advice would always be if you don't have to move them then don't move them Ring, speak to a vet, find out exactly what it is that they want you to do. If you're in the middle of nowhere and there's just you, then, yeah, you've got to use whatever it is that you've got around. And certainly your jacket, definitely a good idea. Put the uh, the branches down the arms, as you're saying, to give it a little bit of stiffness. And it gives you something to hang on so that you can drag them along. Ideally, lift them off the ground a bit as you're dragging them. They're not keen on that, but you've, you've just got to do what you can. And it's very, very difficult when you've got a big dog. I take my boys out and have Axel and Rain. They weigh about seven and eight stone, respectively. And to carry them when I weigh about eight and a half stone, not going to happen. Just not possible. So unfortunately, in a situation like that, it is use your coat as a stretcher. If you've got somebody with you, fantastic. If not, your stretcher is going to make the difference and means that you can drag them along. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've given us some fantastic advice there. That, that, I, that 
was very informative for me um, and, I, and I, I know listeners will be interested. Where can people find out more about you, Kerry? Well, I live in East Yorkshire, but mm-hmm. I am prepared to travel, you know, the length and breadth of the country. We had, um, I spent all of um, the bank holiday up in Scotland in Linlithgow and we did three courses back to back for the guys up there and then came down the following weekend and spent that in Bournemouth. Oh. So we do get around a bit, the miles. You you know, there's not a lot of first aid trainers for dogs out there, so I do tend to get the miles under my belt. So I am prepared to travel. Mm-hmm. So if anybody is interested, they can have a look on our website. Lots of information on there. It will tell you the sorts of things we do on the courses. There's video and there's photographs and feedback from other students as well, so you can see what they had to say if they want to have a look. Um, and certainly contact me direct. All the contact numbers are on there. It's roads to safety, and it's roads, luckily for me, as in Rhodesian Ridgeback. So it's www.rhodes, hyphen, then the number two, hyphen, then the word safety, S-A-F-E-T-Y, dot co, dot U-K. And everything's on there, all the contact details. You'll be able to find us all about us. And if you want to book a course, we'd love to come and see you. And I believe, Kerry, you've got a book coming out. I have, yeah. It's... It's not your usual book, though. Usually with first aid, you always get the very nuts and bolts. It's very dry, and it's this is how you do ABC form. I have written a book. It's called Roads to Recovery, Doggy Style. Uh, And actually, what it is, it's written purely from the point of view of Axel. Hmm. And all the dogs that we've had over the years, I mean, I've had dogs since I was 13 years old, and there have been an awful lot of characters that I have had living with me and an awful lot of incidents that they've got into. So the book is written by Axel in his own personal opinion of what's going on. It's funny, it's humorous, but it's factual as well. And it tells the stories of scenarios that he he and my other dogs have got into and how we treated them at the time. But then at the end of each specific chapter, I do put the nuts and bolts in there as well that's supposed to be written by me. The idea is, initially, it's going to be downloadable, so you get it straight off the website and do it that way. But we're hoping it will go into hard copy as well, and when it does, you'll be able to read the whole thing. It's you know, enjoyable and entertaining, and you're learning as you go with it. But hopefully, we'll be able to detach the section that tells you what to do as well, so you can pop that straight in your first aid kit, and then if the incident ever does happen, you don't have to trawl through all the story looking for the information you want. It'll be right there at your fingertips, straightforward, no nonsense, this is what you should do in this situation. Because nobody wants to waste time if the dog's bleeding. You want to know exactly what to do, and it's just A, B, C, do this. So, yeah, that's the book. That's great. Um, I've spoken to lots of trainers, behaviourists, you know, but... And, and, and they've all changed lives. But I think you're the first person I've spoken to who, who actually sort of goes out there and saves lives in, in that, in this sense, you know, not in a rescue sense, in an actual practical emergency sense. Yeah, so. and the love, it's actually one of the best parts about the job is afterwards, I mean, you don't realise how many situations there are like this that actually that do happen. And it always used to surprise me that after we'd done a course, usually... A couple or three weeks after a course had taken place, you start getting emails and it's people who've been on your course and saying, wow, I can't believe it. I did this. I did that. And I'd done um, two courses over a weekend and we worked out that altogether there was 40 people on the course. And within three weeks, I'd received five emails from people that I'd I'd taught 
telling me of the things that they'd done with their dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, one had run through the woods and caught himself on a log and had a V-shaped flap of skin on his front that oh. she had to look after and put a pressure bandage on. Another one um, had hurt his ankle. Um, another one had um, a routine bitch spray, and in the night she'd pulled all the stitches out, so she had oh. to deal with that. Oh. Um, various things that yeah. happen, you know, they go on and on and on. And it's not until you start doing this and people come back to you. And it's lovely to think that, yeah, yeah, it was awful for them and what happened. But wow, how much better that they were able to deal with it, get on top of it. And the dog is absolutely fine. And you know that you've been instrumental in it. So well done to all my students, I say. They've done fantastically well. (laughs) Brilliant. Thanks ever so much, Kerry. Lovely to talk to you. Wasn't that great advice? You can find out more about Kerry at her website, which we have a link to on the Dogcast Radio site. And she's also on Twitter and Facebook. But right now, I'm off to find a stethoscope to listen to my dog's hearts. A dog can express more with his tail in minutes than his owner can express with his tongue in hours. Unknown. Hello and welcome to the Dogcast Radio News Desk. I'm Nick. At Dogcast Radio we do like interesting dog-related research and there have certainly been some fascinating studies recently. One such study was undertaken by University of Lincoln researcher Emil van der Zee and his colleagues. They recently investigated whether dogs identify objects by their shape or size. Whereas toddlers learn words for items based on their shape, it seems dogs judge more by size. The researchers used made-up words to describe a number of articles of varying shapes and textures and found that, irrelevant of shape or texture, it was the size of an object that was most significant for a dog. In an incredible breakthrough, scientists at Cambridge University have restored movement in the legs of paralysed pet dogs by transplanting cells from the dog's noses into their spines. Results have been phenomenal. Jasper, a dachshund who was completely unable to walk before the treatment, was able to whiz around the house afterwards. The hope is that this pioneering treatment may be able to help humans suffering spinal injuries regain movement too. Sometimes people can be very dismissive of online social websites, but Facebook was actually instrumental in saving a dog's life. Natalie Luckhurst saw a photo of Basil, the St Bernard, on the site. He was in a dreadful condition and she knew she had to rescue him. The snag was that Natalie was in Grimsby in the UK and Basil was 3,000 miles away in a Cypriot dog pound. Basil had been in solitary isolation for eight months after fighting with other dogs and due to lack of exercise and muscle wastage he had shrunk from 70 kilos down to 49 kilos. That's from 154 pounds down to 108 pounds. Determined to give him a better standard of life, Natalie not only persuaded the local dog charity in Cyprus and the local mayor to help, but she raised £1,000 for medical treatment and travel expenses to get Basil to the UK. Now living happily in his new home, Basil is turning out to be a very calm and friendly dog. Apparently he only clashed with other dogs over food because he was so hungry. Natalie is hoping to build his weight back to what it should be and share many happy years with her new best friend. Have you heard of the fox who thinks she's a dog? 
Well, in Russia, the Novosibirsk of cytology and genetics has been experimentally breeding foxes for their tameness since the 1950s. That's over 50 generations of foxes. It has successfully produced an animal which wags its tail and seeks human interaction similar to domesticated dogs. Scientist Irina Makamachina adopted two fox cubs from the project and trained them using food-based reward systems such as we use to train our pet dogs. Irina says the fox's behavior is midway between a dog and a cat, but both foxes know their name as well as simple commands such as sit, lie down and stand and they both enjoy affection from humans. But for our very last news story of 2012, we have the tale of Noah, a devoted six-year-old greyhound from Telford in the UK. Burglars broke into the family home, and despite being kicked and grabbed by them, Noah not only saw them off, but even chased them down the road until he collapsed. Poor Noah was found by the police, and his owner, Adrian Parker, immediately took him for a check-up at their veterinary surgery. It was touch and go for a while due to his internal injuries, but brave Noah is now back home and being made a fuss of by his family, including Adrian's two young daughters. We're glad Noah's story has a happy ending, and we'll be back in 2013 with all the dog news you'll ever need. So until then, stay healthy, happy and warm, and we'll see you in the new year. A dog has one aim in life, to bestow his heart. J.R. Ackerley I received an interesting press release recently from the Pet Advisory Committee. Using the government's own figures, the committee estimates that pet lovers spent almost £6 billion in 2010 and contributed more than £2 billion a year to the nation's coffers in taxes. Additionally, there are other less visible benefits that help balance the Chancellor's books. Independent studies indicate that the health benefits of pet ownership, and around a half of UK households do own a pet, effectively save the NHS as much as £1.5 billion a year. As the euro crisis deepens, other finance ministers in the EU should also take note. Throughout the EU, in 2010, owners spent €29 billion on their pets equating to €12 billion in tax revenues, and social scientists studying the health benefits of pet ownership in Germany estimated savings of €5.5 billion annually. The Pet Advisory Committee points out that not everything can be reduced to hard cash, as Chair Tracy Crouch MP says. What this research shows is the positive contribution pets and their owners make to the economy and towards a healthy society. While the contribution to the economy is easier to identify, the companionship, interaction and exercise pets can give to their owners, in particular the elderly, and the effect this has on their well-being is of equal worth to individuals and society as a whole. Well, Dogs Trust coined the phrase, a dog is for life, not just for Christmas. But dogs enhance and enrich so many aspects of our lives, it's almost like Christmas every day. That's it for this year, so till next time... Look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. You can contact us on Skype 
with the ident dog cast radio that's all one word dog cast radio by email you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com when contacting us by email if you have the facilities please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file that way we can include them directly in our program we can accept most formats for example wav mp3 all these methods of contacting us can be found on our website which is www.dogcastradio.com and as ever the final word goes to jenny what do dogs call frozen poop poopsicles